Welcome back to another exciting edition of the Pointless Exercise Podcast. It's time to do our second movie deep dive. So joining me, as I should say as always, but it's only the second one, so I guess always is relative, is actor-comedian Mike Pusateri. And we are going to talk about Moneyball from, what did we decide this was, 2011? took us about 10 minutes to figure that out, but yeah, 2011. That's fucking Roman numerals. <laughs> X, V, C, whatever. Right. Um, okay, so I've, I've gotten some feedback that uh, I should probably, I always, I always tout all of your, where they could find you. I probably shouldn't assume that people know uh, how to find me. So I'm going to start mm-hmm. with uh, mine. So you can find me on, yeah. on the Twitters at uh, discipio.com. You have to spell it all out. Because there's some guy named Louis DiCipio who took DiCipio before I could sign up. Um, there's a you can sign, you can subscribe to this podcast, although you did find it because you're listening to it at Anchor.fm/DiCipio, or just go to DiCipio.com, and you can sign up for my newsletter, the Pointless Exercise Newsletter at PointlessExerciseAllOneThing.com. And Mike, how can they find you? Uh, go. Let's go to the. Uh... Let's go to MikePusateri.com, and for there's links there to everything you need, the IMDb page, the Twitters, the Instas, all that, all that stuff. So we decide now there's three Mike Pusateris on IMDb? No, there, there's more than that. Uh, there may more. be like seven. Yeah, there's, there's, a whole, there's, a, <laughs> there's a whole team of them, team of us. But I'm number two. Oh, that's good. Do, they, <laughs> do the rankings ever change? No, it's whoever gets there first. So oh. somebody claimed the name before I did, and then by the time I showed up, that was it. That was the guy that was in Gone Baby Gone? Is that what he was in? That's what he was in, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Playing annoying Boston resident number six. <laughs> Could be. All right. So uh, if, if, if you didn't listen to – we've done one of these before. We did the right stuff. If you haven't listened to that, you know. Go listen to that. I think I told you in the teaser to go listen to that one too. Yeah, you don't have to. Just listen to this. You're already here. Uh, basically, we are going. This is very innovative stuff. We're going to talk about the movie. <laughs> That's the whole conceit. There it is. Yes. So, Moneyball the movie is based on Moneyball the book, written by Michael Lewis, um, who you may also know from uh, the Big Short. Um, the B- Blind Side. Um, what else would people have actually read of his? He always puts Liar's Poker on here. I don't know anybody who's ever read it. Uh, the New New Thing. I don't know if we read that. I read The Fifth Risk. Have you ever read The Fifth Risk? It's a book no. he wrote about how the Trump administration bungled the... Um, um, I can't think of the word. I'm not that drunk yet. Um, the thing that just happened <laughs> when you change administration, economy, country, oh, the, the, the transition, transition. The, uh, the inauguration. Okay. The transition from Obama to them, how the, ah. how the Obama administration set everything up, had all these, all this stuff. And then the Trump, the, the Trump people coming in had no idea. They didn't know what some of the departments did. They had no idea how many people that they really needed for some of these things. Uh, it's a it's a really good right. and really uh, kind of frightening book that anything works. But anyway, um, uh, Michael Lewis, um, do you know who his wife is? Mm. 
Being quizzed. I had a huge um, crush on his wife all through high school. Well, that so, doesn't really help so me. So now I'm even. Yeah. <laughs> Just Sammy Davis Jr. I, <laughs> no, wait, that's. <laughs> Who is his wife? MTV News' very own Tabitha Soren. Oh, my. Yes. Really? Yep. I get that. So now I'm even more jealous okay. of the guy. He made a shitload of money and um, on Wall Street. Then he started writing books. And he yeah. married Tabitha Soren. He seems like a super nice guy whenever he's interviewed. So anyway. So we're gonna, so let's, it, let's try to take him down. Yeah, that's right. We're <laughs> gonna we're gonna rip the shit out of this book and that movie. Because he's a <laughs> jerk. Um Yeah, as we talked about on the when we picked this movie, um one of the things I used to love about uh, Joe Morgan was that he hated this book, hated it, and he would criticize it on Sunday Night Baseball all the time, and then he admitted freely that he'd never read it. The best. And he was never going to read it, but he was pretty sure that Billy Bean wrote it, even though <laughs> it says Michael Lewis right on it. That was the kind of high-quality analysis you were getting on Sunday Night Baseball from Joe Morgan yeah. for 20 yeah. years. Oh, great. Right. And of course, Joe Joe Morgan is a prominent. We assume it's the voice of Joe Morgan that we hear throughout the movie. Yeah, he's in times. it. He's in it. Is that actually him, though? His, yes, I, I think mean, the calls I mean, are all he's... really the. I got a little thing about that. Not the call, not the calls, but when the. Um, or are you talking about the call when when he's talking about you know you got a bunt you know all the stuff yep. you were talking about on that's really him. Yes. Okay. Those are they pulled those clips from actual game broadcasts. Gotcha. Um, movie was directed by Bennett Miller, who had done uh, Capote, which is, I'm sure, why Philip Seymour Hoffman uh, is in this movie. Yeah. He would go on later to do Foxcatcher with uh, Steve Carell and uh, The Incredible Hulk, Mark Ruffalo. He was the third director on the movie. This is a theme of the movies. We had a, a similar situation with the right stuff with the yes. director. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's Hollywood. That's right. Um, the first director attached to this uh, was a guy named David Frankel. Um, Frankel had done a had won an Oscar for a short film, and he would go on to win. Oh, this is great! He went on to win an Emmy for the pilot episode of Entourage. Nice. Emmy award-winning Entourage. Now, but he also, Band of Brothers. Well, that's no Entourage. (laughs) Okay. Uh, The Devil Wears Prada. That was an excellent movie. Mm -hmm. So very accomplished director. Uh, Then Steven Soderbergh was going to make the movie. Okay. Uh, And then it ended up being directed by, by Bennett Miller. Aaron Sorkin wrote the screenplay. Mm-hmm. Also the third person to work on this movie. Steve Zalian, am I saying his name right? Yeah. He wrote the original screenplay. Then Soderbergh, he wrote it for Frankel. Or when Frankel was attached. Soderbergh rewrote big chunks of it, which I want to talk about at the end, about Soderbergh's idea for the movie, which really something. Okay. Um, it's produced by Brad Pitt and Amy Pascal. Amy absolutely hated what Soderbergh did to 
the screenplay. And so when she hired Bennett Miller, she basically said, we're hiring Aaron Sorkin and he's going to fix it. And Sorkin liked Zalian's original so much that even though he rewrote big chunks of it, he insisted the Zalian's name be listed as one of the writers. He said he did, cool. he did most of the work. His name needs to be on this. So. That's, that's very, a very classy move. Very cool. Yes. Yes. So the film opens with a quote on the screen that you have to read. It's like, God, subtitled? I hate reading. I hate reading movies. It's like Star Wars. It's unbelievable how much you don't know about the game you've been playing all your life. By Mickey Mantle. And I think he was talking about playing pinata with his liver. <laughs> no, actually, he's talking about baseball, I think. Yeah. And who is the first person, first, first voice you hear on the movie? Oh, okay. I didn't write that. Okay. Well, no, okay, it would be no quit. fun if you wrote that down. You would know. I know. I know. I know. The first. <sighs> he has a connection to the Cubs. Okay. And they're lucky he didn't drop any kind of um, uh, offensive epithet towards homosexuals. Ball one to Johnny Damon, and we are underway. Damon has eight hits and 18 at-bats, a double, a triple, a couple of stolen bases. In his opening. <laughs> it's Tom Brenneman. Of course. Damn, Tom Brenneman. He's calling. He and the, mm. great, the great Steve Lyons. Yes. Are calling the final game of the 2001 NLDS between the Yankees and the A's. Right. One of the first people we see in the movie, Rudy Giuliani. Yep. And I think he had pants on. I can't be 100% sure. Because he's at the game. It's 2001. He's America's mayor. He's never going to be more popular than he is at that moment. It's all downhill from there. And the big, the big stat they put up on the screen is the Yankees team payroll and the A's team payroll. The Yankees, $114 million. The A's, $39 million. And there they are, faced off in game five of the NLDS. Right, right. So one of the things wasn't, I, it, wasn't it, wait, wasn't it $140 million for the Yankees? I have $114. I feel like it's... $114, okay. 457 768 Hold on. Let's get, uh, can we get the fact checked on that, please? Yeah. We'll, have to, we'll have the team check that out. He's $39,722,689 plus some Pepsi. Um, okay. All right. First thing about the— I bet you it was one fourteen. Yeah. Well, I could have been dyslexic, but I'm pretty sure it's one fourteen. Okay. Um, okay. So we first see a, a character from the movie. We see Brad Pitt as Billy Bean. He is somehow listening to the TV broadcast on a transistor radio while sitting in the empty Oakland Coliseum, the games at Yankee Stadium. <laughs> so that's quite a radio he's got that somehow is picking up Fox TV. But you know, I guess it's possible. And this is the first thing that Art Howe had a problem with. with the movie. <laughs> that's right. He's like, that's some of a bitch. He didn't have another damn TV radio. Not how that worked. Damn it. Never happened. Spoiler alert. The A's lose. In the, in the ALDS, I keep saying NL, in the ALDS, they were not in the National League ever. Um, Billy throws his radio into the parking lot, then gets out of his car for good measure and stomps on it. <laughs> Something that Tom Brenneman's voice has made me want to do for decades. For sure. So that kind of sets the stage that um, the A's have kind of run into 
their ceiling. Yes, because they are losing everybody from that team, basically, who is any good. So Billy sits down with Steve Schott, no relation to Marge, no. uh, the, the owner the owner of the A's, who is played by, uh, I don't know who the actor is. I, for quite a while, thought maybe that's really Steve's shot. <laughs> this guy seems no. a little wooden. But no, apparently it's a guy they paid to act. Um, and basically the conversation they have is that they are about to lose Jason Giambi, Johnny Damon, and, and the great Jason Isringhausen. <laughs> and... Um, they can't comp- and Billy says, I can't compete against $114 million payrolls. The owner says, you just need to find new guys. You found these guys. And I'm thinking, mm-hmm. all right, which one of the Ricketts kids is this? <laughs> which one pattern, pattern his life after her, her life after the uh, after, after shot? So the owner tells Billy, we're not going to pay $17 million per year for players. Billy says, I'm not asking for 20 or $30 million for players. I'm asking you, what are we doing here? Um, we're not going to do better next year. Why not? Well, you know we're being gutted. We're losing Giambi, Damon, Isringhausen. Done deal. We're in trouble. You'll find new guys. You found Jason. You found Damon. I need more money, Steve. Billy. I need more money. We don't have any I can't money, compete Billy. against a $120 million payroll with $38 million. But we're not going to compete with these teams that have big budgets. We're going to work within the constraints that we have, and you're going to get out and do the best job that you can recruiting new players. We're not going to pay $17 million a year to players. I'm not asking you for tens of 20 $30 million. I'm just asking for a little bit of help. Just get me a little bit closer, and I will get you that championship team. I mean... This is why I'm here. This is why you hired me. And I got to ask you, what, what are we doing here? Which is a good question. Right. Why own a baseball team if you're not going to pay for guys to play on your baseball team? Yeah. Some of this will, that will sound familiar to Cubs fans this offseason. The owner tells Billy something I'm sure he loves to hear. He says, we're a small market team and you're a small market general manager. What a guy. It's Oakland. <laughs> It's not, it's, it's not Kansas city or, you know, or Montreal. Well, I guess Montreal was big. Uh, It's not Milwaukee. It's Oakland. And do you know what major league franchise in the 26 years preceding Billy Bean's arrival was the most successful major league baseball franchise? Billy Billy Williams and the Oakland A's, although Billy never won a world series with the A's. Yeah. The Oakland A's. Four world championships. Yeah. Well, but that gets into the whole um, Charlie Finley basically tore them down because he was going to have to start paying players. So that's a, right. an Oakland A's legacy, that and poop in the dugouts. Those are their two right. things everybody remembers about them. Right. And the but they did, But they did win one more, you know, post Finley. So it underscores your point. This is not, this was not right. some. No, they had, La Russa had that little mini dynasty that basically underachieved in winning one of they went to the world series three times and won it once two right. of the weirdest upsets ever losing to gimpy old kirk gibson and basically oral horsheiser by himself right and they're getting swept by the reds by the other shot 
<laughs> battle of shots, that one. I enjoyed the little, some of the little things in the meeting. Uh, Billy's sitting at home, and the phone rings, and he answers it, and it's an agent named Scott. Hmm, who could that be? Telling him that, that Johnny Damon's going to go sign with the Red Sox. for, And he's like, no, we agreed to $7 million. He's like, well, he's getting 7.75 from the Red Sox. Right. And that's more, isn't it, Billy? <laughs> and Billy can't match it. So there goes Johnny. Okay, so then they have the first of a couple of very interesting meetings where Billy sits down with his scouts. Yes. One of the things I loved about this was... Other than a couple of actors, the scouts are scouts. And you can tell pretty much who the scouts are. I mean, that's not a mystery. Well, especially in the first one, because um, the one actor is Nick Searcy, who is known immediately by people who he was. He was um, Raylan's boss on Justified. And he played Deke Slayton in From the Earth to the Moon. It's one one of my favorites. Right. And then... There's a guy who I think is the best actor in the whole movie. His name is Ken Matt, Ken Medlock. Yep. And he's Great. playing Grady Fuson, who was yeah. the scouting director. Medlock has an incredible baseball acting resume. He was in Major League Two. He played an umpire. He was in Mr. Baseball. He played an umpire. He was in major league back to the minors where he got promoted to he got to be a coach for the twins right and he was in the bad news bears the uh, billy bob thornton one as an umpire and he was in brewster's millions and he played a coach in two different after school specials look at that the guy is basically he's he has a jock and he will act on demand. And he is, and this is an outstanding cast. By the, oh, by the way, there was another, before we go too far, there was another uh, connection early on in the movie to the Cubs that we see, uh, that we see he was a player. Remember seeing him? We don't, we don't hear from him or anything. He's just kind of there. No. That is, I'm talking about the great Matt Stairs. Oh, very nice. Yes. So, so was, he, Matt was he, he was an A then? He was an A. Okay. Yeah, I guess I, yeah, that's right. I do remember he played for the A's. Yes. There's another one coming up later. I don't know if you noticed it. I'm going to hold back on, but another, another, <laughs> another uh, equally exciting connection. Uh, maybe even less exciting. So, so there, you had, go oh, ahead. No, as I said, there are other scouts, there are scouts in the room. Yes. There's a guy named Barry Moss, a guy named Artie Harris, not to be confused with former WGN TV director, Arnie Harris, Artie Arnie Harris. Harris, Bob Bishop, George Vernau, and then my favorite, Phil Pote, who also played a scout in the movie The Scout, the Albert Brooks <laughs> movie. Nice. He played himself. He played himself in a movie about a fictional baseball player. Now that's well, something. He, he, <laughs> he really had to dig, dig deep in preparation <laughs> yeah, for that. He was completely unbelievable. It's terrible. <laughs> so, but lest anyone think, by the way, who this is not some dopey baseball movie, though, because I want to go back to the cast real quick. You have, as you say, we have Aaron Sorkin writing it. You have Brad Pitt. You have Robin Wright, yep. Chris Pratt, uh, Jonah Hill, 
the late great, one of the best actors of all time, Philip Seymour Hoffman. You have Arliss Howard, who fans of Full Metal Jacket will recognize. You have, if you're, a, are you a fan of Ray Donovan? Are you a Ray Donovan guy? I'm not, but um, yeah, you need to tell me who's that because I saw somebody who's been in a lot of Ray Donovan. Was it the daughter? Yeah, right. The, the daughter, daughter, right? Yeah. Bridge, right? Bridge. Her name is Bridge on Ray Donovan. Her, her real name is Karis Dorsey. Um, pretty outstanding cast. Not to mention, well, you did mention the great Rudy Giuliani, yeah. <laughs> Bob Costas, Tom Brenneman, the voice of Joe Morgan, all, all kinds of. But it, but it is a. It's a quite a. It's a, it's an incredible cast. So that tells you that this was a movie that was a lot of people wanted to be a part of. The casting director is Francine Maisler, who uh, is still very active today. She casts a lot of enormous projects out her, out here. Um, so this was a this was a big deal movie. Yeah, and the the dialogue in the scouting room is great. There's a lot of crosstalk, and they're just talking yeah. about random players. There's one scout, <laughs> ugly girlfriend means no confidence. Right. The other guy says, guy walks into a room and his dick's already been there. Whatever that means. He's right. got the look. And then the first guy again, I'm just saying his girlfriend is a six at best. Yeah. And that's right. the thing from the book where the, the scouts are actually talking about stuff like that. And there's, yeah, there's some dispute about the, um, about why it's bad that a player has an ugly girlfriend. Some people claim it's the confidence thing. Other people, bad eyesight. It's actually in the book. <laughs> They're worried the guy can't see when they look at his girlfriend. Like, Ooh. Right. Artie. Who do you like? I, I like Perez. He's uh, got a classic swing. He's real clean stroke. I don't know. Yeah. Can't hit the curveball. Well, there's some work to be done. I'll admit that. Yeah, but, there is. Uh, he's noticeable. Got an ugly girlfriend. What's that mean? Ugly girlfriend means no confidence. Okay. Oh, no, you guys are full of it. Artie is right. This guy's got an attitude. An attitude is good. I mean, he's the kind of guy who walks into a room. His dick has already been there for two minutes. Yeah, he passes the eye candy test. He's got the looks. He's ready to play the part. He just needs to get some playing time. I'm just saying. His girlfriend is a six at best. <laughs> and so, though, Billy tries to get it on track, saying, by asking the question, what's the problem? The problem we're trying to solve is that there are rich teams and there are poor teams. Then there's 50 feet of crap, and then there's us. It's an unfair game. And now we've been gutted with organ donors for the rich. Boston's taking our kidneys. Yankees are taking our heart. And you guys are sitting around talking the same old good body nonsense like we're selling jeans, like we're looking for Fabio. We got to think differently. We are the last dog at the bowl. You see what happens to the runt of the litter? He dies. Billy, that's a very touching story and everything, but I think we're all very much aware of what we're facing here. You have a lot of experience and wisdom in this room. Now, you need to have a little bit of faith and let us do the job of replacing Giambi. Is there another first baseman like Giambi? No, not really. No. And if there was, what do you afford him? Got to replace Jason Giambi. And what the fuck are you talking about? 168 RBIs or whatever. Nope. That's not the problem. What's the problem? (sighs) He goes on like this, and the scouts are all kind of dumbfounded. Like, what are you talking about, Billy? And I, 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 I love this line. He's like, the problem is there are rich teams. There are poor teams. Then there's 50 feet of crap, <laughs> and then there's us. <laughs> but enough about the dugouts. 
in the Oakland Coliseum. <laughs> if we try to play like the Yankees in here, we will lose to the Yankees out there. There you go. Which is very profound. Right. And true. <laughs> yes. So then the first, the first inside baseball, the stuff that really happens. Uh, he flies to Cleveland to talk about a trade with Indians general manager Mark Shapiro in person in the middle of the winter. Just heads right. out that way because that's what they do. Don't pick up the phone. Just fly right. out there. Well, especially Cleveland. Cleveland you want to get yeah. to. In the- Cleveland you want to go to. And especially when the guy you're talking about is Kareem Garcia <laughs> that demands an in-person yeah. trip. Right. It's not Babe Ruth we're talking about trying to secure so they talk about Kareem Garcia, and they ask if he's healthy, and they says he's healthy-ish. <laughs> and then another Cub uh, connection here. He offers for Kareem Garcia Mark Guthrie and $200,000. But then <laughs> Jonah Hill is whispering to another guy who then keeps going over and whispering to Mark Shapiro. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden Mark Shapiro doesn't want to do the trade. And they're also talking about Ricardo Rincon, which comes up again later. Right. Yes. It's a little foreshadowing coming up. Right. So, so the then Indians say, we're going to keep Garcia. Right. Yeah. Well, you can't, how you give up the great cream Garcia. <laughs> Although he did, I looked it up. Cream Garcia had a, had a very productive 2001 season for the Indians. So see, so Jonah Hill was right. Jonah Hill was right. Yeah. J- Jonah Hill. Should we talk about his character? I mean, he's technically yes. an amalgam, but but he's kind of Paul D. Podesta. He's, he's Paul D. Podesta to the point where in the original script, Paul D. Podesta was called Paul D. Podesta. And uh, Dimitri Martin was going to play him. Paul was cool with that. Then when the script got rewritten, he was not cool with it. And the rumor had gone around that it's because he didn't want Jonah Hill playing him. He insists that wasn't the case. He insists that in the new version of the script, there were things that, He's like, I didn't, I never said that. I never did that. I understand why you did it for the movie, but because I didn't actually say that, I would just assume you not make it come out of my mouth. That's what he, <laughs> that's what Paul D. Podesta claimed. Okay. Um, so Paul D. Podesta, he, yeah, he is, he's basically, he is Peter Brand. Um, in this movie, Peter Brand joins the A's. Billy buys him, calls him at home where Peter Brand is sitting on his bed and talking on the phone. And he has the poster behind him is Plato, <laughs> not, not Plato, Plato, no. the Greek philosopher. No. That's the poster above his bed. That, mm-hmm. that seems a little odd. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in reality, Paul D. Podesta joined the A's in 1999. He did come from the Indians, but it was 1999. Right. Um, he's probably most famous for two things. He was a general manager of the Dodgers. Mm-hmm. Um, not long after Moneyball, like the 2000, 2004 or five, I think he went to the Dodgers. Um, took him to the playoffs for the first time since the World Series, but then the next year they were awful and he got fired. He then uh, resurfaced as the, uh, what was it, like director of player information or something for the Cleveland Browns, yeah, which pissed off all the NFL people. Um, Paul DePodesta went to Harvard. Do you know what sports he played at Harvard? Uh, crick, uh, rugby. He played baseball and football. Really? Yes. Okay. So apparently, well, that's pretty, good, pretty good athlete, even for a yeah. So yeah, so it's 
somehow the fact that he started off in a baseball front office meant the NFL guys, he could never, ever. Be, right. He could, how could you possibly understand our complicated sport, even right. though you played right. it your whole freaking life, including in college? Right. Exactly. It is ironic because he is, you know, in the movie, he's, you know, he's in real life. He's comes from the he comes from Cleveland and he's with Cleveland now. But it's the Browns, not the Indians. Yeah. So uh, after the meeting where Billy is denied uh, Cream Garcia or Ricardo Rincon, he hunts down Peter Brand in the cubicle farm in the middle of the uh, Cleveland's offices. Who are you? I'm Peter Brand. What do you do? I'm special assistant to Mark Shapiro. So what do you do? Mostly player analysis right now. You've been on the job long? First job in baseball? It's my first job anywhere. Wow, congrats. Thank you. <laughs> first job. Whose nephew are you? And he, he demands to know, who are you? <laughs> and he says, I'm Peter Brand. And then my note was, actually, he's a bunch of guys squished into Jonah Hill's pants. Oh. That's okay. who he is. Well, I mean, he was supposedly. That's true. It was more of that other stuff. Right. Then they go to the parking garage to have a conversation. Well, the, the first he goes, he goes, uh, first job in baseball. Oh, yeah. And, he, and, he goes, and he's like, first job anywhere. anywhere. Yeah. And he repeats again, who are you? And he's like, who, who's, whose nephew are you? <laughs> yeah. Which is great. By the way, Brad Pitt is phenomenal in this movie. Brad Pitt is a terrific actor. I know that's, I just want to say that right now. He get people like to think of him as, well, he's such a, you know, He's such a handsome, you know, he's such a handsome guy. How could he, you know, he's not that good of an actor. He just gets by on his looks, which is something I understand, Andy. I get that myself yeah, a well, lot. Yeah, people, I, I know people talk about that all the time. All the time. But he is fantastic, and he's really great in, in this movie, and that, that sequence is particularly funny, I thought. But I like that to have their secret conversation, they go to the parking garage, like it's right. like Deep Throat. Like it's yeah. Watergate. <laughs> I kept waiting for Jonah to go, these guys aren't these aren't smart guys and things got out of hand. <laughs> Follow the money. There is an epidemic failure within the game to understand what is really happening. And this leads people who run major league baseball teams to misjudge their players and mismanage their teams. I apologize. Go on. Okay. People who run ball clubs, they think in terms of buying players. Your goal shouldn't be to buy players. Your goal should be to buy wins. And in order to buy wins, you need to buy runs. You're trying to replace Johnny Damon. The Boston Red Sox see Johnny Damon and they see a star who's worth $7.5 million a year. When I see Johnny Damon... What I see is is an imperfect understanding of where runs come from. The guy's got a great glove. He's a decent leadoff hitter. He can steal bases. But is he worth the $7.5 million a year that the Boston Red Sox are paying him? No. No. Baseball thinking is medieval. They are asking all the wrong questions. And if I say it to anybody, I'm, I'm ostracized. I'm, I'm, I'm a leper, so... 
that's why I'm I'm cagey about this with you. That's why I, I respect you, Mr. Bean, and if you want full disclosure, I think it's a good thing that you got Damon off of your payroll. I think it opens up all kinds of interesting possibilities. I didn't know he was a leper. That's <laughs> right. The poor guy. Right. He says baseball thinking is medieval. <laughs> you could see why so many baseball executives love the movie. So then as in the book, we flash back to young Billy Bean. Yes. Hotshot uh, baseball player from wherever. Somewhere in California, I think. Yeah. Um, in high school. And uh, we see him playing and, you know, spraying balls all over the field. And um, two scouts are sitting in his at his kitchen table with his parents trying to convince him uh, to sign um, with the Mets. One of those scouts is a real baseball guy. Do you know who it is? He has two I, connections to Chicago, one very one good and one very, very bad. Hmm. One of the two guys in the one of the two guys at sitting the sitting sport. at the table. Yes, there okay. for for real. The, the the guy in the movie is the is the real baseball guy. Well, one guy does all the talking, so it can't be that guy. Well, actually, the the other guy has the more has the most memorable line, which is the line about um, we're all told we're all told we have to it's time to put down or stop playing the kids game. That's right. not this guy. We're all told at some point in time, Billy, that we can no longer play the children's game. We just don't don't know when that's going to be. Some of us are told at 18. Some of us are told at 40. But we're all told. Right. No, I didn't think so. Right. Okay. Yeah. So that guy is Tom Gamboa, who was a coach oh, on wow. the Jim Riggleman staff for the Cubs, but is most famous for he's the poor guy that the Lagoo brothers beat up when they jumped, when they ran out of the field at Comiskey Park. <laughs> and he lost his hearing as a result of them beating him up. Those Jeez. fucking scumbags. Yeah. Um, yeah, but that's Tom Gamboa, and he's in the and he's in the wow. movie. That's excellent. So that sets up. So that's important because that sets up why Billy is so open to this concept of analytics and statistics and everything else because he knows he's he knows how wrong the scouts were about him. Yeah. So he. he he, he knows says something like, I know that you can't know. Yes. Right. Nobody right. can know. Right. You can't look at a player and know. And that answers the question that has to be answered by anybody who's watching this movie is why is Billy the only guy doing this? There are a number of reasons. You know, he's smart. He's forward thinking or whatever. But it really comes down to this. He was told that he's the five tool player. He's going to be the Mets center fielder for the next 10 years. They give him a big bonus so that he does not enroll in Stanford where he had his baseball scholarship. He gives all that up and he craps out. And yeah, that's, that's all, that's completely true. But also he also is, he's forced into having to do something different because they can't, they're losing players and they can't replace them. Right. They can't go buy another, they can't replace Jason Jambi in free agency. They have to f- improvise. And so right. it's kind of the perfect timing, which in reality was not the perfect timing because he went and got Paul DePest three years before this. But for the, <laughs> for the movie, it's perfect timing that he's losing their best offensive player. And how is he supposed to replace him? Well, right. he can't. So, yeah, then he calls um, 
calls Pete. Yep. And you see the Play-Doh poster. And he says, pack your bags. <laughs> I just bought you from the Indians. Well, Eddie, but before that, he asked him, he says, would you have drafted me in the first round? Cut the crap, man. Would you have drafted me in the first round? I'd have taken you in the ninth round. No signing bonus. And he kind of, you know, hums and haws. He doesn't want to insult his p- potential new boss. Yeah, because I know you looked me up. Right. <laughs> right. And after a little bit of hesitation, he finally goes, I'd have taken you in the ninth round. No signing bonus. No signing bonus. Yeah. I guess he would have passed and taken your scholarship. Right. Just bought you from the Cleveland Indians, Pete. And- <laughs> so another thing I like is he, so he finally shows up for his first work and o- first day of work in Oakland. And he hands Billy um, a stack of stuff. I wanted you to see these player evaluations that you asked me to do. I asked you to do three. Yeah. To evaluate three players. Yeah. How many did you do? 47. Okay. Actually, 51. I don't know why I lied just then. <laughs> that's, that's just Aaron Sorkin. Yes, that is... I also Perfect. enjoyed that it, it appeared that the A's had one computer yeah. for the entire franchise. They just had one computer because he had to go to like a computer lab to work on a computer. It's like, wait, what? What is this? 2002. It's not, <laughs> it's not 1986. They didn't have to go to the CERN laboratory and do this stuff. <laughs> didn't have to learn to program Fortran. Yeah. So then he has him do um, he has him do projections for the season. And he, he, Peter Brand projects that the A's need to win 99 games to make the playoffs, which is ridiculous. Yeah, that's insane. Except, had they won 98 games in 2002, they would not have made the playoffs. So he was right. Yes, which I'm sure, looking at the standings as you were writing the script, made that number a lot easier. But the Angels won 99 games, and the A's won 102. Right. Yes, as you said, the benefit of hindsight is a big influence in that in that number. So then there's a number here that I I wrote down because I'm like, this is weird. He said, of the 20,000 players we can consider, there's a team of 25 players that we can afford because other teams undervalue them. 20,000? Where does that number come from? <laughs> That's a good question. Is that like anybody who's ever, everybody in the United States that year who bought a, who has a baseball glove? I mean, 20,000 <laughs> seems a little high. Yeah. I would think most teams have, I don't know, 150 players through their whole systems. Something like that. So I don't, is 150 times 32, 20,000? I don't think so. I don't think so. Thanks, little shy. So I don't know where <laughs> that comes from. I don't know. So then they um, they start running down some of the guys. The, the, the guy they use as their example of the – the out-of-the-box thinking is going to get us this great player is Chad Bradford. He says he throws funny. He should cost $3 million. We can get him for $237,000. Mm-hmm. And then they show an actor having to do the awful Chad Bradford thing where you, like, lean over and scrape your knuckles on the mound as you're trying to throw. Uh, the only issue with that is uh, Chad Bradford was uh, an A in 2001. Well... <laughs> You're they got like but he is the reason that Hawk Harrelson hates the book so much because there's a whole thing in there about how they got him. And it made Kenny seem like he didn't know. There's two things in here that in the book that pissed Hawk off. Mm-hmm. 
One of them is it makes it seem like ev- like if Kenny wasn't such a dolt, the White Sox would have known Chad Bradford could actually get people out. Uh-huh. And then another one is that in the, the in 2002, they trade for Ray Durham. And both Billy and Michael Lewis make the case that Durham was worth more to the White Sox in a compensatory pick had they just hung on to him and let him go free agent than what they got for him from the A's. But that's why Hawk would rail about money. But money ball doesn't work. That shit don't work in the playoffs. To go on and on, it was all because he they he he felt like they besmirched the great Kenny Williams, also a Stanford guy, uh, in the book. Well, when you when you are you know as successful as a GM as Hawk is, you can certainly right criticize. Well, I mean, honestly, he's probably pissed that it's not the movie wasn't Hawkball. Yeah, right. And it was all about trading. Um, Bobby Bonilla for Jose De Leon. You know, Hawk, you know, Hawk has a script and moving called Carlton Hawk Fist to left. He's got a script called Hawkball. He's been trying to pitch for yeah. thirty years. <laughs> I won't buy it in Hollywood. Damn it! <laughs> so about this time is the first time we meet Art Howe. Yes, played joyously by the great Philip Seymour Hoffman. The joy just rolls out of every pore of his body. Now, it's funny because famously in the movie Almost Famous, um, where he played um, rock critic. um, God, why can't I think of the guy's name? Philip Seymour Hoffman, sick. Every day he was on the thing. He only worked like four days. Was horribly Mm -hmm. sick the whole time. Watching this movie, I'm like, oh, I'll bet he wishes he was sick for this, it would have even more enhanced him being a dour turd as Art Howe. <laughs> he does a great job um, on his own, but I'm thinking, oh, this would have been, that would have been the perfect method, would have been for um, him to have actually been sick. People can't tell I'm now Googling yes. something. Um, so Art... Uh, some of the first things that uh, – oh, he played Lester Bangs. I don't know why I couldn't think of Lester Bangs in Almost Famous. So uh, Art asked Billy to come out in the – or runs into him in the hallway. Hey, Art. Can I talk to you a second before you get started? Getting busy right now. I know. I know. Okay. Good morning, everyone. Art. Can you bring this? What the hell is Pete? Mm-hmm. That's Pete. Grab a seat. I'll be right back. Okay. Okay. He's on the line. This is a good friend of mine. I can't manage this team under a one-year contract. Well, sure you can. No, I can't. Okay. I got to put a team on the field. After that, I'll take a good long look at your contract. How about you deal with the manager's contract and then put a team on the field? Art, at this moment, if the ground is hit the first, nobody's going to be there to stop it from rolling. It's not easy doing what I do under the cloud of a one-year contract. Okay, I understand that. I've been there. I know. I know you have. And a one-year contract means the same thing to a manager as it does to a player. There's not a lot of faith there, which is strange after a 102-win season. I see. If you lose the last game of the season, nobody gives a shit. (laughs) Um, Right. Here's the thing. In 2002, Art Howe 
wasn't in the last year of his contract. And that's was, one of the one of his beefs, one of Art's big beefs. Yeah, he was, was signed the, through 2003. Yep. However, at the end of the season, he and Billy uh, agreed to part ways. So it makes it easy then to just write it as, you don't need to explain that in a freaking movie. Right. No, Art's gone. Course not. So Art was upset about that, the real Art. Art was also upset that this conversation you just described was depicted as taking place in a hallway. So I never had this conversation in a hallway. Nobody gives a shit about that Art, really. We're, we're trying to film a movie here. We're not. It's not a documentary. Right. It doesn't really matter where the conversation took place. It's just that it did take place. So they go into another scout meeting. This one, I think, the best one in the whole thing. This and is the best one. There are now two more real actors mixed in. Two of my favorites. One of whom is a guy named Glenn Morshower. Do yes. You know, do you know what Glenn Morshower is most famous for? I, 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 like, I love a Glenn Morshower, but I'm not going to be able to answer your question. He before. played Landry's dad on Friday Night Flights. There you go. So um, he was the one who helped them, helped them hide the body when Landry became the murderer in uh, season two, which by season three, Friday Night Lights, completely forgot. Pretend that didn't happen. Never <laughs> killed anybody. Now, we know it was he was trying to save the girl he was in love with from being attacked. He still hit a guy in the head with a log or something and killed him. Right. And they pretended. Right. And then Jack McGee, who's been in a lot of stuff. The two things I recognize him from, he was the chief on Rescue Me. Mm-hmm. And he played the sheriff in Basic Instinct. So they are now mixed in with the same group of scouts, but it's a bigger room. Right. Right. And now the room includes Jonah Hill. Yes. And one of the great things where Billy, I don't remember what it is, but Billy asks him something and has to point at him and start snapping his fingers to try to get him to speak. Billy, we got 38 home runs and 120 RBIs. Guys, you're still trying to replace Giambi. I told you we can't do it, and we can't do it. Now, what we might be able to do is recreate him. Recreate him in the aggregate. The what? Giambi's on-base percentage was 477. Damon's on-base, 324. And Almeida's was 291. Add that up, and you get... Woman sweep. Went up one of you, yeah. Ten ninety-two divided by three. Three sixty-four. That's what we're looking for. Three ball players. Three ball players whose average OBP is three sixty-four. Right. Just pointing at him and repeatedly. Me? Yes, you. He makes him do math. He has to do some math at one point. Yeah, I think he was. Tra- he had to come up with the average on base percentage. Of Giambi. <laughs> well, that's right. Guys. Yeah. You want me to speak his, when I point at you? Yeah. Right, because Billy explains that they're going to have to replace Jason Giambi in the aggregate. Yes. And the three well, people that they, they bring up as possibilities to replace him are his brother, Jeremy Giambi, mm-hmm. who one of the scouts goes, he's a weed smoker and a terrible defender. Now, that scout... <laughs> Was not wrong. <laughs> I know he wasn't. David Justice. Old the, man Justice. Right. Scott, his legs are gone. His legs are gone. Right. And Scott Hatterberg. <laughs> can't throw. Who? That's yes, who and can't throw. He's a catcher. Right. Um, yeah. Interesting goes, yeah, in that at the time, only Jeremy Giambi was actually an A. 
Justice was um, we'll get into this. Justice was a Yankee, although they actually traded for him from the Mets. Right. He was a Met for like a day, and then he got shipped over. And uh, Hatterberg was a free agent. He'd been a Red Sox and had some kind of awful nerve thing in his arm, and uh, literally couldn't throw. Yeah, can't of, can't. And somebody goes, "Who?" And he mentions Hatterberg. Somebody goes, "Who?" And he goes, "Exactly." Sounds like an old guy <laughs> already. Scott Hatterberg. Who? Hatterberg. Exactly. Well, Sounds like an Oakland A already. Okay. Yes. <laughs> and then one of the guys yells, you're not doing this Bill James bullshit, are you? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Ron well, Washington yes, uh, makes an appearance. Uh, not the yes. real Ron. There's a guy acting as Ron, who's one of my Yes. Guys. Very good actor. None of these guys knows how to play first base. Brent you're just going yeah. to have to teach him. <laughs> Then one of the, maybe one of the most famous scenes in the movie, all because of one guy's line delivery, is it's Christmas. We see Chris Pratt for the first time, mm-hmm. sitting alone on his couch, all depressed. Doesn't have it's, he find out he's Scott Hatterberg. He doesn't have a team. It's where he's not going to have a job. And on Christmas Eve, who rings the doorbell? No, they call. They call first. They call first. It's Billy Bean wants to talk to him. Tells him go answer the door. We're standing out front. Yeah, like, w- w- when do you want to meet? Go answer the door. Right. In real life, they did not, so shockingly, they did not go to Scott Hattieberg's house on Christmas Eve. They did, however, Billy did call him on Christmas Eve. And the mm-hmm. conversation, Hattieberg claims, was basically the one you see in the movie, except it just didn't happen in person. How's the elbow, Scott? You know, it's good. It's really good. It's great. Uh... I can't throw the ball. (laughs) (laughs) And then the line that I I love, and it was in the trailer and it was in everything is Billy just selling Hatterberg. He's sitting there. He's sitting there. Ron Washington's sitting next to him. And he goes, you don't know how to play first base. Scott. That's right. It's not that hard, Scott. Tell him, Wash. It's incredibly hard. Hey. You don't know how to play first base. Scott, it's not that hard. Tell him, Wash. It's incredibly hard. <laughs> <laughs> it's perfect. And then was Billy, I, I didn't even catch this part. I just wrote it down. I thought it was funny. They're, they have a little crosstalk. And at one point, Billy says something about, what about the fans? And we're going to teach you. Wait a minute here. I mean, what, what about uh, you? Jason's gone, Scott. Giambi, you want me to take Giambi's spot at first base? Yeah. What about the fans? Yeah, maybe I can teach one of them. The fans do. Good one. <laughs> so that's just all that is all Aaron Sorkin right there yeah. no doubt about it yeah and one of the things I think is honestly if you it's a lot harder to be a catcher than a first baseman if you uh, yeah. can learn how to catch right you sh- you can learn how to play first base one of the reasons why some old catchers who tried to move to first base haven't been able to do it is because usually you're at an age stage in your career you can't move because yeah, you've been a catcher Right. But Scott Hatterberg was like, I don't know, 28, something like that. And it was his arm, not his legs that were bad. So it really wasn't that crazy that he could no. move to first base. Okay, so I, I pulled out. I think there are three very Aaron Sorkin scenes in this movie. And the next one I, I rank as the number one Aaron Sorkin scene in the movie. Yeah. Billy mm-hmm. goes to his ex-wife's house to see his daughter. And the ex-wife is... 
The beautiful Robin Wright. The beautiful Robin Wright. Yes, yes absolutely. Right. Beautiful and talented Robin When they Wright. were casting The Princess Bride, um, William Goldman had written into the script that Princess Buttercup was the most beautiful woman in the world. And when he showed up on the set and met Robin Wright, he told Rob Reiner, you actually cast the most beautiful woman <laughs> in the world. So that's yes. Um, and you also meet her new husband, who is? Mm-hmm. Spike Johnsy. Spike, yep. And so the reason that I think this is the most Aaron Sorkin, this is just, he could have plunked this scene down in any movie he's ever made at some point, where you're trying to establish that. Yeah. Um, so there's Spike having this very stilted conversation with Billy about the end of the season. Want to have a seat? Yeah. You good, Billy? Yeah, good. How are you, Alan? Good. Really good. Things are peaceful around here. It's good to see you. Thanks, Alan. You know, I haven't got to see you since the playoffs, and I really wanted to say that New York was heartbreaking. I'm sure for you, too. And not many teams make it that far, and to watch you guys go that far and play that well was really an accomplishment. Well, that's nice. How is the team shaping up? Team's good. Uh, rebuilding. Good. Oh, I yeah. read you lost uh, GM Bonnie and Damon. Giambi. Yeah. Where he's like, oh, you know, you guys had such a great year, and it was just too bad that it had to end like that. And yeah. so then you feel you start to feel like, well, maybe this guy's kind of a nice guy, and he, you know, he pays attention. And then he says, I believe you lost GM Bonnie and Damon. <laughs> Yeah. There was no need for that. Then they have no. a whole thing about the daughter's got a cell phone and it pisses Billy off. And that kind right, of right, right, right. <sighs> Big parody decision. And of course, the, the daughter, that's Bridge from Ray Donovan. Yes. That we're talking about. Billy takes her to a guitar shop mm-hmm. and makes her sing right in the middle of the guitar shop. That was a little odd. Yeah. That's and then, of odd. course, people start throwing things at them. No, no, no. That's what would have happened if I had been in the guitar shop and there was a 12-year-old girl playing and singing. Shut up. I'm trying to buy a pick over here. Would you sing a little for your dad right here in the middle of the store? A little bit. A little bit. You ready? I'm ready. <laughs> okay. I'm just a little bit caught in the middle is a maze and love is a riddle i don't know where to go can't do it alone i've tried and i don't know why i'm just a little girl lost in the moment i'm so scared but i don't show it i can't figure it out it's bringing me down i know i've got to let it go and just enjoy the show so the song she sings is called The Show by a singer named Lenka. And uh, Lenka released it in 2008. Okay. So apparently it was, that was also not uh, historically correct. Not that anyone <laughs> really cares. No. Well, Art Howe definitely would not have. Art, Howe, Art had that on his list. Goddamn, that song wasn't even out yet. Hadn't been written. <laughs> Going to make a movie. You could at least make it uh, a little more accurate than that. Yeah. 
Yeah. So then we th- we're back to seeing highlights of Billy being the player. Yes. And um, a game where he's playing as he's playing for the Mets against the Dodgers at Dodger Stadium. The announcers include Kevin Kennedy and Tim McCarver. What a what a crew! Yeah, boy. Um, according to my extensive research, makes you want to just you know find the tape again. Billy never played a game at Dodger Stadium uh, with the Mets, but that's okay. <laughs> so Dodger Stadium appears in this movie eight different times. Oh, you counted them! Wow, as eight, eight. Dif- well as eight different stadiums. They only filmed in two stadiums. They filmed at Oakland Coliseum ah. and Dodger Stadium, and they had to dress Dodger Stadium up. Dodger Stadium became all the other stadiums whenever it was anywhere okay. but, except for at the very beginning with the Yankees game because they just show actual like footage from the game. There's no it's, – right. it's, they're not filming it. Right, right, right. <clears throat> um, we get our first uh, mention then of uh, Kevin Euclid former yep. uh, Cub coach and uh, spring training invitee once to the Cubs, and then he retired. So excited mm-hmm. about playing for the Cubs, he quit. <laughs> uh, and the fact that they, his nickname was the Greek God of Walks. Yes, we learned that. Then we get the big fight between Grady Fusen and Billy Bean. You're unhappy, Grady. Why? <laughs> wow. May I speak, Kansas? Sure, go ahead. Major League Baseball and its fans, they're going to be more than happy to throw you and Google Boy under the bus if you keep doing what you're doing here. You don't put a team together with a computer, Billy. No? No. Baseball isn't just numbers. It's not science. If it was, then anybody could do what we're doing, but they can't because they don't know what we know. They don't have our experience, and they don't have our intuition. Okay. Billy, you got a kid in there that's got a degree in economics from Yale. You got a scout here with 29 years of baseball experience. You're You're listening to the wrong one. Now, there are intangibles that only baseball people understand. You're discounting what scouts have done for 150 years, even yourself. Adapt or die. This is about you and your shit, isn't it? 20 years ago, some scout got it wrong. Whoa. Okay. Now you're going to declare war on the whole system. Okay, okay, my turn. You don't have a crystal ball. You can't look at a kid and predict his future any more than I can. I've sat at those kitchen tables with you and listened to you tell those parents. When I know, I know. And when it comes to your son, I know. And you don't. You don't. (sighs) Okay. I don't give a shit about friendship, this situation, or the past. Major League Baseball thinks the way I think. You're not going to win. And I'll give you a nickel's worth of free advice. You're never going to get another job when shot fires you after this catastrophic season you're about to set us all up for. And you're going to have to explain to your kid why you're working at Dick's Sporting Goods. I'm not going to fire you, Grady. Fuck you, Billy. Now I will. Slight problem with that. Billy Bean never fired Grady Fusen. Grady was there through 2002 and then went to be the scouting director for the Rangers. Where do you think Grady Fusen currently works? 
Oakland A's. Yeah, for Billy Bean and the Oakland A's. That's how much they Maybe. hate each other. Yeah, they're um, well, and great the the real life Grady Hugh. Oh, also Grady tells him that he's going to be working for uh, Dick Sporting Goods. <laughs> <laughs> Billy Bean will be working for Dick Sporting Goods, which is a great line. And the real life Grady was actually he he's another who had a beef with the movie for some of those reasons, but he did not like the fact. He said, I never said fuck you to, to Billy. Yeah. He's like, I would never do that to my boss. Yeah. So he didn't like that fact. So Art and Grady were, were <laughs> too unhappy. Two guys uh, not happy with uh, their their portrayals in the film. So one of the Which things I... Why, by the way, because Art Howe is now known to a whole generation of people because he was played by Philip Seymour Hoffman that would have no, have no idea who Art Howe is. Yeah. Right. Except that he beat COVID. Yeah. yeah. I caught COVID in the spring and he beat it. So that's why, yeah. that's, that's what fans know him for now. Really? No, there you I guess go. not. No, guess not. So we finally get to start seeing players, actors yes. playing players. And one of my favorite things in this is that the actor who plays Jeremy Giambi is like maybe five foot seven. <laughs> yeah. Maybe. He's this tiny little guy um, who honestly should have played, but they didn't put him in the movie, even though he wasn't, he was, part of the draft class from this year, um, Nick Swisher. That guy, that tiny yes. little guy would have been a perfect Nick Swisher. Oh, that's so good. Yes. But that's so good. If there's ever a movie that calls for Nick Swisher <laughs> as a character, go this find guy, that. They're bringing guy. this guy back. Whoever Bring that is. guy back. He's terrific. Yes. Excellent call. So we also get to see Miguel Tejada for the first time. Do you know who played Miguel Tejada in the movie? I do not. Royce Clayton. Really? 17-year major leaguer Royce Clayton played Miguel Tejada in Moneyball while he was an active player. Okay. He's the one who tells – his only line in the movie is David Justice is trying to buy a Pepsi or trying Mm -hmm. to get a Pepsi. It's a dollar, man. What? Welcome to Oakland, DJ. So we just know Crane Kenny at some point saw that scene and it was just it's like, ooh, all over it. Mm. Make some money here on the players. Um, it's opening day in Oakland and Joe Satriani is playing the national anthem. Yes. He's playing himself, playing the anthem. Pretty believable, I thought. I thought Joe was mm-hmm. a passable Joe Satriani. Um, and that's when we first find out that Billy doesn't watch the games. He tells Brand that he has to text has to text him because he's the play by play because he's not going to watch. Right. To, to which um, the first text he has to send is to tell him that Art is starting Carl, future former Cub Carlos Pena and <laughs> current marquee sports star Carlos right. Pena at first base instead of Hatterberg. Yes. Um, despite the fact that it's he literally texts him that like as the game is starting which I find out that the general manager didn't know what the lineup was because I'm, even the, anybody in the stadium, like a half hour before the game knew what the lineup was. Right. 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 You're just reading off art house uh, shit list here right now. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But it's our, it is our first, it is, it is setting up the, the you know, uh, or conti- not really setting it up, but continuing the friction that our claims did not exist between he and Billy Bean, but we are seeing that uh, that Billy uh, Billy's plan is not being implemented by his uh, by his management. I should have made you a bigger part of the conversation from day one. 
That way be clear what we're trying to do here. That was my mistake. I take responsibility for that. What are you trying to say? I'm saying it doesn't matter what moves I make if you don't play the team the way they're designed to be played. Billy? You're out of your depth. Why not Hatterberg at first? Because he can't play first. How do you know? Not my first baseball game. Right. Scott Hatterberg can't hit it's his on defense. Is Still keeps us in the plus column. We only need to be 7 over 500. What? Anything else? Yeah, I would have rather seen Bradford in the end than Magnante. Bradford's a righty. I don't care about righty-lefty. I do. Could this be about your contract? No. This is about you doing your job and me doing mine. Mine's being being left alone to manage this team you assembled for me. I didn't assemble it for you, Art. No oh, shit. <laughs> Good meeting. Every time we talk, I'm reinvigorated by my love of the game. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like right. Jed Hoyer says that every time Crane walks out of his office. Yeah, don't you think so? Yeah. He also there's also a great line in that meeting where where he goes, uh uh I didn't assemble it for you, Art, for meaning the team. <laughs> <laughs> it, it makes anybody who, if you're just watching the movie, you have to just be wondering, why didn't Billy just fire Art Howe? Why wouldn't you fire him and have put a manager in who will do the things you want, which is what they eventually did when Ken Maka took over the next year? Right. Why wouldn't you fire Art? Well, I guess Art won 102 games last year, and he was about to win 103 games this year, which I guess was yeah. maybe why. But uh, that's your so answer. Then as right. we I, I, we talked about this during the Right Stuff podcast, the very next thing made me very happy because I did not expect it in this movie. I remember thinking about it before it started. So I told you that my brother and I have for our whole lives played a game where we watch a movie where you have to be the if you hear the name of the movie, you have to <laughs> yell out hence the name of the movie. And I was sure I'm like, oh, this is a movie that it's not in. It is. <laughs> They're interviewing fictional Grady Fusen. All right, we got Grady Fuse on the line, former head of scouting with the Oakland Athletics. And Grady, can you interpret for us what's going on? They call it Moneyball. Moneyball. Yes, and it was a nice theory, and now it's just not working out. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea that was that it was actually going to be in the movie. I was very excited. <laughs> yes. Grady bashing Bill James. The other great lines. Um, they, we have the weird scene where... Um, Billy makes Peter Brand fire him or cut him. Yes. Tell him I'm a player right. and you have to cut me. I don't know. I don't know. I shouldn't have. I'm not going to do this. I don't think I think this is stupid. I'm not going to fire anybody. And this is dumb. They're professional ball players. Just be straight with them. No fluff. Just facts. Pete, I got to let you go. Jack's office will handle the details. That's it? Really? Would you rather get a bullet to the head or five to the chest and bleed to death? Are those my only two options? <laughs> and that's in the book, too. There's a whole thing where he tells Dee Podesta, um, he doesn't make him, like, 
actually go ahead and do it. Like he eventually does with Brand. He actually makes Brand tell Carlos Pena he's been traded. Doesn't right. do it. But there is a long conversation in the book about what it's like to to tell a player that it's over. Um and in the uh well I'm getting ahead of myself, but in the in the movie when they do the trade at the trade deadline, um, Billy goes down to the clubhouse and has a nice heart-to-heart with Mike Venifero to tell him that, or uh, Mike Magnante, to tell him that he's been released. And because they traded him, they, they traded for Ricardo Rincon, who just happened to be in town that day, playing against them, he's got to get out of the clubhouse because they're not allowed to have more than 25 players in the clubhouse. Uh, in reality, Billy called Art and made Art do it. <laughs> which i loved but honestly yeah, i think I that's what the, i think I, the manager does it i don't think the i don't think theo was heading down you know to tell right. guys that they were that was joe's job right right i don't think theo told ryan dempster he was traded although that would have been great if he did if i was theo i would have told him i would have <laughs> been down there. Like, i was playing fucking golden tea in the office when they did it he was yeah, holding up true. other trades another thing i'm sure we pretty positive didn't happen there's a there's a flight and David Justice is sitting next to Peter Brand on the flight. I'm sure that happened all the time. Say, bro, let me ask you a question. Yeah. How come your boss doesn't travel with the team? He doesn't like to mingle with the players. Is that supposed to make us easier to cut? I don't know. How come soda is a dollar in the clubhouse? I've never seen nothing like that. Billy likes to keep the money on the field. Soda money? Really? Where on the field is the dollar I'm paying for soda? <laughs> so the A's are in free fall. They've lost 14 of 17. They're now 20-26 on the season. We see the standings flipping by on the screen. And one of my favorite things is they show a, a fan holding up a sign that says, we're still proud of you. <laughs> it's so great. Uh, uh, Terrence Long gets thrown out stealing, which makes Billy throw a chair. Mm-hmm. Terrence Long on the season stole three bases in nine attempts. Oh, that's Albert Elmora shit right there. Yeah. That is not what Billy was after. Um, Billy at one point tells his daughter she's worried he's going to get fired because people are, they're not playing well and people are talking about it and he's just like, don't go on the internet or talk to people. Yeah, just don't, his don't, advice. Don't go on the internet or talk to people. But before that, we see Billy groveling to ownership that ownership <laughs> made him get rid of all of his best players and I'm thinking, wow, what? I wonder who else <laughs> <laughs> had a similar conversation these past these past months. But the point is, is that now he's under, now Billy's under tons of pressure, yeah. right? And now it's hitting home too. Now his daughter is worried about, is he going to lose his job and everything that goes with that. And there was a scene earlier, uh, I think when they, right when they were starting spring training where he goes, this better work. I'm just kidding. You. He looks at Pete and he goes, this better work. <laughs> and, and then Jonah Hill just has this look of terror on his face. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Yeah. Taps him on the shoulder. But there's a ton of pressure on him, right? He's done He's done all these crazy things, the seemingly crazy things. Team is losing badly in last place, 10 out. 
Um, ownership's on his ass. His daughter's worried about him. And then he that's when he decides from now, if I remembering right, that's when we see Billy send the lineup down, right? Billy's pissed that Art is keeps playing Carlos Pena instead of Scott Hadbert. Mm-hmm. To which I was thinking, why doesn't he just send Pena to the minors? Can't play him if he's in the minors. Well, the reality of it is, that's what happened. <laughs> Pena was okay. in the minors. Um, although he had started and he hadn't played very well. And the other thing I was wondering was, when did they get Carlos Pena? Well, they had just traded for him during the offseason. Ah, um, okay. cause he had been a rookie for the Rangers in 2001 and they're going to, he's going to be rookie of the year and whatever. And it's like, well, he wasn't going to be rookie of the year, but, um, <laughs> he was, a, he was technically a rookie though. He hadn't played enough to not be a rookie and he finished eighth in the rookie of the year voting in 2002. So they had traded for him that, that off season in a six player trade. They got the great Mike Venafro and Pena for Jason Hart, Gerald Laird, Ryan Ludwig, most famous for being the white, the uh, the St. Louis Cardinal who most looked like Cameron from Ferris Bueller's Day Off, right? <laughs> and Mario Ramos and Pena. One of the reasons they wanted him was in 2001 with Texas, he had an on base average of 361, but he did not. With the, he was like 302 or something with the uh, with the A's. Um, so yeah, so after he sends the lineup down, they lose again, and. We see Jeremy Giambi turn on the boombox in the clubhouse and start dancing. And then we see Billy walking into the clubhouse and he hears the music. (laughs) And we get to see what it was like in 2004 when Kerry Wood took a bat to Sammy Sosa's (laughs) boombox. He asked it was not pretty. He asked Jeremy if losing is fun. And then he pauses, and there's complete silence. And then Billy says, that's what losing sounds like. Which is awesome. <laughs> yep. So the next scene is not the Jeremy Giambi trade scene. There's one in between. Right. Billy is at the airport with his daughter. Yes. And he's... She's flying, clearly flying home, which made me wonder then why does he need to be in Oakland so bad if she doesn't live in Oakland? Yeah, I was wondering that same thing. She lives in San Diego with her mom yeah. and Spike Jones. Um, Spike Johnsy. Johnsy, whatever. I never knew that was how he said it until you said it. <laughs> he spelled J O N Z E. I'm going to say Jones. Yeah, go for him. Well, maybe you're right. What do I know? Yeah, so that's why I was like, why is she so worried he's going to get fired and have to move when they don't live in the same city? I think she'd more be like, maybe you can get fired and you can become the Padres general manager. But no. Right. So then we get to what I think is the second most Aaron Sorkin scene in the movie, and it is them trading. It's the trade scene. So it's just Billy Bean, Peter Brand, and Billy's secretary. Right. Has to do now, a lot of say, has to do a lot of phone dialing. You said uh, annoying. You found the scene annoying. No, I think it's the second most Sorkin scene. In Sorkin scene. Yes, yes, like I agree. Only right. you feel it's just feel it's drips of Aaron Sorkin. The totally. Whole scene. The urgency. The yeah, everything about it. Okay, so the first thing he does, he calls Ed Wade for the Phillies and says he needs some defense for Jeremy Jambi. And who does Wade offer up? 
when you're thinking defense, you're thinking John Mabry, right? I remember when he played for the Cubs. That was all I could think of was what a whiz he was with the glove. Yeah. Uh, John Mabry, who hadn't successfully fielded a ground ball in like six seasons. And um, that deal is done. They just do it. No haggling, no nothing. To which I wondered, well, wouldn't Art just play John Mabry at first base now? How did that solve (laughs) your problem? (laughs) But he calls Dave Dombrowski. Offers him up rookie of the year, Carlos Pena, to the yes. Tigers. Um, yeah, Brand says Pena's going to be rookie of the year, and he's going to be an all-star. He was right. Pena was an all-star <laughs> seven years later with the Rays. <laughs> yeah. Oh, here's the stats. Way. Pena was hitting 218, 305, 419, with 38 strikeouts and just 124 at-bats with the A's. And, but he was actually in the minors at the time of the trade. He wasn't actually up there. Right, um, right. And here's the trade. And it was a it was a little more complicated than the one uh, Peter Brand and Billy Bean executed during the second most Sorkin scene in the movie. Mm-hmm. The trade was Carlos Pena and a player named later to Detroit. The Yankees traded Jason Arnold, John Ford Griffin, and a little left-hander named Theodore Roosevelt Lilly to the A's. <laughs> Mm. The Tigers sent Jeff Weaver to the Yankees and cash, not Norm cash, just cash (laughs) to the A's. A month later, the A's sent Jeremy Bonderman to the Tigers to complete the trade. So something tells me the trade was not really about getting Carlos Pena off first base when he was in the minors so that Scott Hedberg could play there. Right. Uh, The other thing about it was Jeremy Giambi was traded on May 22nd. Carlos Pena was traded on July 5th. <laughs> in the movie, they're traded within 30 seconds of each other. Right. Then Billy gives an inspirational speech to the A's. Tells them, yes. you may not look like a winning team, but you are one, so play like one tonight. <laughs> Is that going to get anybody fired up? No, it was not... Uh... It was not Newt Rockney, let's put it that way. But that starts the best thing in any sports movie, the montage. Yes. We get montage. We get a montage of Peter Brand telling Royce Clayton as Miguel Tejada, don't swing at that pitch. You hit 189, we swing at that pitch. Swing at a fastball on the outer half, you hit 361. And, and, him, and Miguel looking very intent, like, ooh, that's good advice. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. David Justice in the batting cage. Oh, you're special. You're paying me seven million bucks a year, man, so yeah, maybe I am a little bit. No, man, I ain't paying you seven. Yankees are paying half your salary. That's what the New York Yankees think of you. They're paying you three and a half million dollars to play against them. Where are you going with this, Billy? David, you're 37. How about you and I be honest about what each of us want out of this? I want to milk the last ounce of baseball you got in you. And you want to stay in the show. Let's do that. Yeah, that was a little, sure. that was rough. Yeah. <laughs> then there's, I forget who Hatterberg is talking to. It might be Justice. I think it's Justice. Scotty H. Yo, what's up, DJ? Cooking machine. <laughs> How you liking first base, man? 
it's uh it's coming along picking it up you know tough transition but i'm still i'm feeling starting to feel better with it yeah yeah what's your biggest fear a baseball being hit in my general direction <laughs> that's funny seriously what is it no seriously that is that <laughs> right he's trying to take him under his wing there but it didn't work out too well so then uh peter and billy are watching um there was watching tv in the clubhouse or whatever or in their offices and you can hear parts of what is being said by the sportscaster and part of what you can hear is the a's have won seven in a row art howe is the reason they are winning and Peter goes, you hear that? To which Billy <laughs> goes, I hear, I heard seven in a row. Yeah, right. Yeah, doesn't give a shit who got. Right, right, right. Which was certainly, I'm sure, not the case at all. <laughs> but funny that Art Howe, you know, because up until now, it's Art Howe is the big uh, resistance right. to Billy's plan. And now they start winning and it's Art Howe is getting all the credit. And I, th- I think we hear, do we hear Joe at that point? Joe Morgan talking about Art Howe? Maybe not. I don't I don't know. I think I, I wrote know. down when we get to Joe. Okay. Let's go with that. Yeah. Um, then we get to the third most Aaron Sorkin scene in the movie. It's trade deadline day. Mm-hmm. And they're, and they need Billy still wants Ricardo Rincon for whatever unknown reason. Ricardo <laughs> Rincon, never that good. Wasn't that good for the A's, but he wants him pretty bad. So here comes Mark Shapiro back from the <laughs> earlier scene right. of the movie. But first, he's calling Brian Sabian because in order to afford Rincon, he has to get rid of salary. So he's trying to trade Mike Venefro, the lefty that he doesn't want on his roster, so that he can get, so he can clear a little money so that he can afford Ricardo Rincon, who makes, at the time, a million dollars. And it's July 31st. You're only going to have to pay two months of Ricardo okay. Rincon and the A's can't afford to do it unless they <laughs> get rid of at least two months of Mike Venefro's. So he calls first, he calls the giants and he offers Venefro. Then he calls the Mets and he offers Steve Phillips Venefro. The idea being that he thinks those are the two teams who might trade for Rincon. So he's going to get them a lefty reliever cheaper so that they don't go after Rincon and he's going to save the money from Venefro and he's going to spend it on and this in the book this is exactly what he does this even though this is Sorkin dialogue this was the whole this is what he was doing at the trade deadline was trying to get Ricardo Rincon and so he has all these conversations and they go back and forth and but at, meanwhile while he's on the phone with the GMs Jonah is on the phone Steve Schott is calling the owner so Jonah's right. on the phone and he's basically telling him Billy needs money Okay, let me talk to my owner. I'll call you back. Thanks. Get Steve on the phone. Shot or Phillips? Why would we call Phillips back? Phillips has got to call us. Tell him I'm on the other line. Hi, Mr. Shot. It's uh, Peter Brand. I apologize for putting you on hold earlier. Billy asked me to call you back. He's on another line. Tell him we want 225000 Billy says he needs $225,000 for Ricardo Rincon. Please. 
Yes, I, I added the please at the end. Uh, okay, let me... Hold on one second, please. Tell them I'll pay for them. But when I, when I sell them back for twice the amount next year, I keep the money. Okay, so Billy says he'll pay for Rincon himself. But when he sells him for more money next year, he's keeping the profit. Okay, thank you very much. We'll call you back. Thank you. Come on! Come on! Suzanne, call Shapiro back. Yeah, Billy, who made 400 grand at the time, is just going (laughs) to pay for two months of Ricardo Rincon. Because because in the offseason, he's going to trade Ricardo Rincon for somebody super cheap. And then right. he's going to keep the, the cash difference. The ca- right. That's it. That was, that was yeah. a scheme. <laughs> and Sean's like, all right, cool. Yeah, and that's when we get Jonah Hill with the very weird, and it's the only, the only gif you ever see from Moneyball. He does that weird, like, slow motion fist yeah, pump right. thing. Because ah. they're going to get him. Uh, in yeah. reality, they, trade, they did trade Marshall McDougal, who they mentioned in the scene. Um, to the Indians for Ricardo Rincon. They do not trade Mike Venifer to anybody. They just keep him. They actually had both guys. Uh, basically because once Billy got the promise from the owner that he could pay for him and got the Mets and the Giants off of Rincon, he just kept both guys. He released Venifer in the offseason. Yes. Now we get another montage. Now it's the winning streak montage because we've heard they won right. seven in a row and now they're going to go. And the first voice you hear on the winning streak montage is a guy you think of when you think of sports in 2002, Tom Arnold. <laughs> From the best damn sports show, period. And I wondered if you remembered this. Do you remember about that time when Chip Carey refused to say you know, the Cubs were on Fox Sports Net Chicago, and he would have yeah. to read promos for the best sports, best damn sports show, period. Chip would not say damn. Oh, that God. He refused yes. to say the yes. word damn. Oh, clearly right. Harry Carey's grandson. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> oh, Chip. Beautiful Robin Wright calls Billy in his car mm-hmm. to congratulate him on what a great season the A's are having. And we find out that that is the day of their attempt to win their 20th straight game, which would set mm-hmm. the modern record. They had tied the Philadelphia A's and somebody else at 19. Right. We found that out during the montage. We also learned during the montage that from Bob Costas that the 1927 Yankees only won That's nine. Right. right. Just shows how random winning streaks yeah. can be. Because Bob's got to piss on anything when given the chance. <laughs> Don't tell me the score, Pete. Oh, Billy, it's me. Sharon? Yeah. You, you have a second? 
Yeah, what's up? Well, I didn't actually expect you to pick up, okay? I was gonna leave a message. Um, anyway, Casey and I were here and, and we're watching the game at home and um, I just wanted to say, you did good, Billy. We're really proud of you. I appreciate it, Sharon. Thank you. Good luck. Okay. Oh, Casey wants to talk to you. Hang on. Hey, are you on your way to the stadium? No, I'm on my way to Visalia to see our minor league team. Turn around, please, Dad. No way, Jose. Turn around. Nope. Come on, Dad. Not gonna happen. You're not gonna jinx it. I'll talk to you later, sweetheart. I love you. Billy does a huge U-turn across like four lanes of traffic and says, fuck it, I can go to this game. Right, I can't blow this one. Yes, they're up eleven nothing in the fourth with Tim Hudson pitching, as we see. Right. Yes, I can't jinx this. We're yeah. way up too far, up to too much. Well, the Royals score five runs in the fourth. <laughs> they score five runs in the eighth, and Billy Koch comes in to try to nail down the save in the ninth, and Mike Sweeney gets a hit to tie the game. To which Billy mm-hmm. whips the ball, he throws his glove into the. Uh, Um, John Mabry, by the way, started that game at first base. I looked that up as I was looking at the box score. Okay. So yes, that's what well. Art was doing. He was playing John Mabry at first base. But it turned out to be key yes. because uh, tied at 11 in the ninth, the great Art Howe pinch hits Scott Hatterberg <laughs> for Eric Burns. Hatterberg. Patty. Grab the bat. You're hitting for Burns. Come on, let's go. So close.
accomplished what no one has before. They have won 20 consecutive games. All coming together. So I was reading a thing about uh, Chris Pratt. Um, this was like his first, he was on Parks and Rec at the time, but this was his like first shot at, you know, being in a, in a movie. Mm-hmm. And um, Bennett Miller kept turning him down for Hadbrook because he was too fat. So, and when you look at Parks and Rec, he, Chris Pratt used to be the, his character, uh, Andy Dwyer, a little beefy. Yeah, was kind of a fat slob at the beginning, and that was the role. And he was—he had broken both of his legs falling into a pit, and he right. was laying on the couch. Um, right. So, but apparently, the you know this movie was taking so long, even when they had finally gotten the green light to get cast, that he just kept working out and like sending photos of himself to the casting director. And really? Finally, they're like, "Well, he's in pretty good shape. He looks like a baseball player," and so they cast him. Um. So it so tied at tied at eleven in the ninth. Scott Hederberg comes up to pinch hit, and somehow there's Billy Bean working out in the in the weight room during the ninth inning, <laughs> and somehow in the weight room he hears the crack of the bat. <laughs> Art Howe not happy about that detail either. Yeah, and Scott Hederberg gets a walk off home run. Um. Found this thing on the internet that was doing nitpicky stuff on the Moneyball movie. They basically said that they were very impressed with Bennett Miller's recreation of that game because even in the later highlights, even the out-of-town scores are changing in sync with what was really happening at that time in the game. That's cool. So they got all those details right, except for the fact (laughs) that (laughs) when – when Billy turns the radio on, Raul Abanez is batting for the Royals. When he gets to the stadium, it's the same inning, and Raul Abanez <laughs> is still batting. <laughs> it's a fast, he's a quick driver. Right. Yes, very fast. And it was a big at bat. A lot of foul balls. Uh, right. Yeah. Now, after, now after, the, after the walk-off homer, um, they, you know, they, they intersperse footage from the real game. We see the, we see the real celebration on the field. And here's that thing I was mentioning earlier. There's another Cubs legend of, of them in the Matt stairs category that we see that we see ever so slightly second, maybe playing for the A's or is he a Royal yeah. walking off the field? dejected. He was an A's coach. Oh shit! I know I noticed this, and now I can't think of what it was. Because I remember thinking that same thing. Like, oh, that's now I forget. Yeah, the great Mike Quaddy. Yes, that's right. He's got hair. <laughs> the they, they, that actor they should have made him shave his hair and his eyebrows if you want to be in the right. movie. That's right, Mike Quaddy with hair. Yes, very excited. That just shows right there they couldn't bother to get the details right. Right. <laughs> um. Not to, not to veer this into remember this crap territory, but so that's that home run. It's kind of the revert in my mind. I was trying to think of what's a Cub highlight that reminds me of that because that was it was a, it was a huge win for the A's. It was the twentieth in a row. They they needed almost every win because they the Angels were right on their ass. Um, it was a game that they had in hand and then they blew, but then they still won. Mm-hmm. And what it reminded me of was twenty fifteen. 
when Chris Bryant hit the walk-off home run against the Rockies. It had happened just a few days after Cole Hamels no-hit them. And that game against the Rockies, the Cubs had blown a comfortable lead in the last couple of innings. And it was like, oh, shit, here it is. You know, it's the Cubs. Right, had this great go. season, you know, this unexpected season, and now we got no hit the other day, and now the fucking Rockies are going to get us. Um, and Bryant hits a two-run, two-out home run for a 9-8 win. One heroic swing of the bat. This team needed a lift in the biggest way, and the kid came through. Wow, is that huge. So they were going to lose. It wasn't just, we weren't going to extra innings. The Cubs were going to lose. Brian hits right. the, the home run. Now, the reason it's kind of the opposite of this, as far as what happened, was the A's, it, that was the, the, um, the reason that it's the pinnacle of the movie, the, the big moment, is because they didn't do anything they made the playoffs after that, but then they did what they always do. They crapped out in the first round. But the Cubs, after Bryant's home run, the Cubs won 16 of their next 18 games. And that was when they got right on the Pirates and Cardinals' ass all the way right. down to the down the stretch. But, you know, just head That's good. That, no, that's a pretty good parallel. So now we're off to the playoffs. Yep. Where the Twins lose, the Twins beat the A's. I said probably because they had Jock Jones. <laughs> they even have some guy got to dress up as Jock Jones and jump up and down on the field in the celebration. Uh, somebody's complaint was in the movie, Corey Kosky catches a pop-up to end it. It was actually um, Denny Hawking. It was the second baseman, not the third baseman. It's like, all right, yeah. I don't think that really matters. It's probably the, the extra right. who was playing uh, Corey Kosky could actually catch a pop-up. <laughs> like, you know what? It. Hit it to him. Uh, we need somebody to catch the ball. That would be right. Good. Right. No, nobody's going to talk about this until we do it some podcast 10 years from now. So this is the point when we hear voiceover from the great, yes. dearly departed Joe Morgan. But John, remember one thing, percentages hold up over the course of a season. But for one game, one at bat, throw the percentages out the window. Which is the Twins can beat the A's. The A's can win 102 games, but the Twins can beat them in the playoffs because it's over a five-game span the same stuff doesn't necessarily work its way out. And to which I wrote in my notes, he's not wrong, but he's still an ass. <laughs> yep. Uh, so then uh, season's over. Billy goes off to Boston to interview with John Henry. The Red Sox need somebody to replace Mike Port, who had been the interim general manager after the new owners can Dan Duquette. Um, does anybody remember who the Red Sox hired? Yeah, I don't. Um, That's some guy. Um, was it? Was yeah. their assistant GM? I don't remember. Teddy something. something. Yeah. Ted, yeah. Jed. Uh, no, something. Theo. I don't know. It was something. So. It was something. Right. Now, you by the way, do, do you know who uh, the actor who plays John Henry? Yes, because I looked it up, but also because you said it earlier. It's it's okay. Arliss Howard. And yes. so what connection does he have to another famous baseball movie? Ooh. Hmm. Some of these, there's so many of them, they can't all be unintentional. This one's pretty subtle, but 
So in the Sandlot. I don't know. know. Go for it. Oh, okay. When Scotty Smalls is grown up at the end, he is played by Arliss Howard. Oh, look at that. Very nice. Very nice. Arliss Howard, perhaps, perhaps best known as Private Cowboy in Full Metal Jacket. Probably. I honestly wouldn't. I couldn't have told you that his name was Arliss Howard. Okay. I, he's one of know, those. Yeah. He's a that guy. I recognize him. Guy. I'm like, oh yeah, that yeah. guy. Yes. Like I know of, that guy. Of, What's that guy from? A lot of good that guys in this movie. Yeah. So Billy and John Henry are shooting the shit, sitting there at Fenway. In the background, this is 2002. In the background, you can see the 2004 and 2007 World Series banners. Right. Couldn't have CGI those out. <laughs> but they're there. Right. Um, and they wonder why it took anybody. Billy says, "Hey, I saw you guys hired Bill James." John Henry's like, I don't know why it took anybody, somebody so long to hire him. I'm like, well, I do, because he's a weirdo. That's why. (laughs) (laughs) That's a really strange dude. Yeah. Yes, he is. So what John Henry, at least fictional John Henry, says. 41 million. You built a playoff team. You lost Damon, Giambi, Isringhausen, Pena, and you won more games without them than you did with them. You won the exact same number of games that the Yankees won, but the Yankees spent $1.4 million per win, and you paid 260000 I know you're taking it in the teeth out there, but the first guy through the wall, he always gets bloody. Always. This is threatening not just a way of doing business, but, it's, but in their minds it's threatening the game. But it's really what it's threatening is their livelihood. It's threatening their jobs. It's threatening the way that they do things. And every time that happens, whether it's a government or a way of doing business or whatever it is, the people who are holding the reins have their hands on the switch. They go batshit crazy. I mean, anybody who's not tearing their team down right now and rebuilding it using your model, they're dinosaurs. (laughs) <laughs> Two Billy is anybody who is not tearing down their teams right now and rebuilding it using your model is a dinosaur. <laughs> and that dinosaur would be the Hendrysaurus Rex. <laughs> so then Billy goes back to Oakland, sits down with Peter Brand Podesta. Yep. And they talk about how it went. Billy even says, I really wanted to win here. He's clearly made up his mind. He slides a piece of paper across the table because he asked him how uh, Peter asked him how much was the offer. He slides a piece of paper across. And this is how you can tell I didn't write this movie because had I written it, Peter would have opened it up and gone. Is this pesos? <laughs> uh, apparently it was twelve and a half million dollars. Twelve and a half million for like four years. He was making four hundred grand a year for the A's. He would have been the highest paid general manager in baseball. Right. So, so, go ahead. From 2000 to 2003, so four seasons, the A's won 400 games. They went 0-4 in the ALDS. They lost in the fifth game every time. Brutal. Um, they have made the playoffs 10 times under Billy Bean. They've lost eight ALDSs and two wildcard games. And yet, they have won a playoff series. Because last year, baseball added the weird, <laughs> the weird wild card series thing. The one the Cubs lost to the Marlins. Well, the A's beat the White Sox. It's right. the only playoff series they've won. 
under Billy Bean, even with all that success. Classic. Classic. And they and they and the White Sox side, the guy whose arm fell off pitching against them. Yes, that's right. Nothing like so. it's you know, it's that's all right. It's, it's the Cubs have never had any uh, never saw that with uh no. Brandon Morrow pitching every inning against them and then signing him and then he hurts himself putting his pants on or taking his pants <laughs> off, I guess, in the closet. Yeah. Yeah, that always works out well. So then I I remember thinking about this. I'd, I'd read the I'd read the book before I saw the movie, and one of the most famous scenes in the movie is this long tortured explanation of Michael Lewis talking. About. Jeremy Brown is a huge part of the book. He is this sloppy fat catcher who who is an on literally an on base machine in college. Gets on base at like a like remember Sean Dunstan batted like seven hundred in high school. Well, Jeremy mm-hmm. Brown got on like seventy percent of the time in college. And even though scouts looked at him and said, the dude can't catch, he can't play a position. He doesn't hit for power. The A's drafted him pretty high. Um, I forget who it was. I, should, I, I didn't bother to go back and read, read the whole book. Um, the draft they talk about in the book, the, um, ironically, the, the A's refused to consider Prince Fielder because he's too fat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, I saw every home game Prince Fielder played in class A because I was working for the Beloit Snappers at the time. Fat or not, he was 19 years old in the Midwest League. The youngest, I think he was literally the youngest player in the Midwest League. And Prince Fielder was easily the best player in that league. Yes, he, he could play. Um, he was a super nice guy, too. Um, although he said something horrible about Beloit in ESPN the magazine, which the Snapper owners... The Snappers are owned like used to be owned like the Packers, like the city of Beloit. Oh. A bunch of people owned them. Really? And he got asked in ESPN the magazine why him and Tony Gwynn Jr. lived in Janesville, and he's like, "You ever mm. been to Beloit?" Oh, yeah. They didn't like that. Ouch. Um, Ouch. But anyway. Ouch. So Jeremy Brown is a big part of it. They 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 go ahead and get it. And so I, there's a <laughs> Michael Lewis loved to explain this thing about how there was a game where Jeremy Brown hit a ball hard to left field and thought to himself knew that the outfielder was in and he was like I'm going to get a triple and busted his ass rounded first base fell flat on his face Uh had to literally crawl back to the base touches the base he's safe at first the first base coach tells him you hit a home run (laughs) and he has to get up and run around the base while the players laugh at him Right. <laughs> they have actual footage of that in the movie. Yeah. It was, Peter Brand cues cool. it up and they actually show it. So I like, I like that was the fact. Um, Jeremy probably Brown. Po- oh, poignant Jeremy. scene in the movie. It's probably the most poignant scene in the movie where they're watching that. Yeah. Don't you think? Right. Yeah. About how, see, the thing we're doing actually is working, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Jeremy Brown hit, played 539 games in the minors. He hit 268, 370 on base average, 439 slugging. So he didn't hit for much power. Um, he played one season for the A's. He hit 300 on the dot, just like John Crook, retired a 300 hitter. Uh, 364 on base, 500. Uh, you can't pull fat, as John Crook would say. Right? And he hit a 500 slugging percentage. So he was a huge success, right? Well, it was only five games. <laughs> so maybe. <laughs> So then the movie, we see Billy in his car. He's on his way to, maybe he's on his way to Boston. We don't know. Right, we don't know. He's driving. He opens up the console. He pulls out a CD, puts it in, 
his daughter has recorded the song that she sang for him in the music shop, mm-hmm. which won't be released for six more years, but that's fine. <laughs> right. And Art, Art Howe, if you're listening, we know. We're yeah. pissed about it. Uh, hey, Dad, this is the song I told you I'd record. Please don't show it to anyone else. Um, let me know if you change your mind and stay in California. If not, you're a really great dad. <laughs> Just a little bit caught in the middle Life is a maze And love is a riddle I don't know where to go Can't do it alone I've tried And I don't know why I'm just a little girl Lost in the moment I'm so scared But I don't show it I can't figure it out It's bringing me down I know I've got to let it go And just enjoy the show Slow it down, make it stop, or else my heart is going to pop. Billy starts to get choked up. She finishes the song by singing, You're a Loser, Dad, over and over again. And right. he stays. In the screenplay, the song Aaron Sorkin called for was Against the Wind by Bob Seger. <laughs> okay. And they didn't explain whether or not Bob Seger was going to be singing the song and Billy was going to get choked up and stay. Or whether his daughter was. <coughs> but apparently the story is that the actress played, because they made them, they had to be able to sing to get the part, because that was the big, you know, the, it was the twist at the end of the movie. Right. That's the song she sang. Ben Miller liked it so much, he said, I'm just going to have you sing that in the movie. That's a, class, that's a classic Hollywood thing right there. That's cool. We're talking about, again, Br- Kara Storcy, Bridget, from yes. Um... Okay, so now, do you? Oh, go ahead. Uh, well, maybe you're going to head there, but I, I don't. This to me, the movie does not adequately adequ- adequately explain why Billy does not take the Boston job, right? Because as you pointed out, it's they're kind of we're kind of leaning. Well, he doesn't want to leave his daughter, but as you point out, his daughter lives in San Diego. Right. He's in Oakland. It's a plane ride either way. What's yep. the difference? Right. And I don't know if it's a. You get a much better feeling in the book that as, as tempted as he is to try this with resources, he's more tempted to try to keep doing it this way. Like he's so – and in the – they've been trying it for more than a year in, re, in reality. In the movie, they don't do it for a year. <coughs> but he's – you get the feeling that he's like, I think this can work. And if I go to Boston, I'm never going to find out because we're not going to sign Scott Hatterberg to play first base. You know, right. it's going to be great. We're going to maximize things if we can get we can fill out our roster with fringy guys that people undervalue. But we're going to go get, you know, we're the Red Sox. We're going to buy real players. And they don't make that case in the movie. They 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 hinge it all on. I don't want to be half a country away from my daughter. Right. Right. So, yeah, I don't think that part works. I don't think so either. Do, do you buy that? I'm not even sure I buy that that explanation. Uh, um Billy was not a rich guy, as we learn. Um, well, when did he, though, become part owner of the A's? Because he is. Well, not, not that, at that time, right? right? No, so I didn't know it, if – I don't think Steve Schott made him co-owner to keep him. Uh, yeah, I don't think so either. So tw- he's making 400000 He turns down a $12.5 million contract to, to uh, be the general manager of the Boston Red Sox. I – 
I don't know. I'm not sure I buy the, I just want to see if this could work and I'll never find that out. If I go to a team with enormous resources, right. like what's that? Well, and how know. does, how does his decision affect? Cause this is the only thing that's important to us. How does it affect the Cubs? Exactly. <laughs> because if Billy Bean goes to Boston, Theo is not, doesn't become the general manager of the Red Sox. Right. He doesn't win. He doesn't break the curse of the Bambino and then win again in 07 and then get disillusioned and leave after 11 and come to the Cubs and win the World Series. Right. So maybe Billy taking the job, Theo was going to get a GM job somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, under his, you know, if, they, all of a sudden, if that started off a run of bad luck, he'd have gotten the job, um, he'd have gotten the Cub job too early under the trib. <laughs> and then he'd have gotten, then he'd have gotten fired. Right. <laughs> So, Which there's no way that Trib would have hired a 28 year old Theo. No, certainly back then. Yeah, but yeah, it does make you wonder how to, that did uh, that did. You're right. If if Billy Band accepts that offer, you know where is Theo at this point? Yeah. Who knows? Because even if he's successful elsewhere, it's not it doesn't have the cachet of breaking the the red tax curse right. and that well and that was the thing that, that made him, allows uh, him to break the Cubs curse so, right yeah and that was the reason that the Ricketts. i mean you know we've we've learned over the years that Ricketts are not a smart bunch they just decided well the red sox did it let's just get that guy yeah well it was the right decision that, that was the smart decision right? i mean it's the right decision but it's like you know even todd can make that decision <laughs> right that wasn't a big stretch no. like yeah let's get that guy he did that cool so among the real players who who played people in the movie, Chad Kruder, best remembered as getting his hat stolen in the bullpen at Wrigley Field by one of the fans, played A's pitching coach Rick Peterson. Look at that. It's Chad branching out. Yeah. <laughs> Renaissance man. Um, did you ever wonder why Billy Bean wears a wedding ring in the movie? Well, I would assume because he's clearly has still has a thing for Robin Wright. You might think that, but he was not single in 2002. He would, oh. he, he was married, oh. and they actually shot scenes with Catherine Morris as his new second wife that they cut out of the movie. Look at you, yeah. very good, really, huh? Poor Catherine Morris, by the way. Why, yes. why, why are they cut out? I was like, I remember she had that show on CBS where she played like the crime scene investigator or whatever, and she had the weird, like her hair was always disheveled. That was like yeah. she was really cute. And she could, we, she was in Moneyball. She probably got a check. Uh, but she got we talked about, So she's like, the, she's like the Wally Shira of, of this yes. movie. She, oh, worse than Wally. She didn't even get two lines. She, she didn't get none. in. They cut she it off. Ah. Okay, we'll so listen to the right, we'll listen to the right stuff podcast for that reference. Yep. So, well, I'm sure they just they listen to that first before they listen to this. Right. Okay. okay. So now, famously, this movie got on people's radar probably about the time Steven Soderbergh was going to make it. Um, but he was going to film it as a mockumentary, mm. and he rewrote the script to do that. And he was going. This is great. His idea was. He was going to cast the actual players to play themselves in the movie okay. uh-huh. to the point where he had already shot interviews with Daryl Strawberry, Lenny Dykstra, and Mookie to talk about Billy in the minors because they played with Billy in the minors. Okay. And then he was going to work his way up and interview big leaguers about the whole Moneyball thing. 
um, the co- his cost of the movie kept going up. And at one point, Amy Pascal looked at it and said, this is terrible. <laughs> no, you're fired. <laughs> how, could, how could a movie with Lenny Dykstra in it be terrible? <laughs> <laughs> um, so Steve Zalian, who also, he wrote other um, movies almost as good. Schindler's List, almost as good as Moneyball. Almost. Um, almost as funny. And... <laughs> um, he also wrote Mission Impossible, the first one, the one nobody could understand what the hell was going on for the entire movie. Uh, he wrote those. Um, in his script, I said Paul D. Podesta is a named character, uh, played by going to be played by Dimitri Martin. There's a scene in the script which you can find on the interwebs, <laughs> set in an outback steakhouse where Billy Bean and Paul D. Podesta are talking. And this is the scene that's going where D. Podesta is explaining Moneyball. This is, mm-hmm. this, they've got it all boiled down to one thing, which is baseball can be drilled down to just two stats, on-base average and slugging percentage. In the scene, they're an outback. They order a Bloomin' Onion because, of course, <laughs> you do. To. They have to. The waitress, Cammy, comes over to the table with the Bloomin' Onion the next scene, naked Cammy is in Billy's hotel room with, with her Outback Steakhouse shirt laying like on the bedpost with her name tag. So you know that it's Cammy. And Billy is standing at the window, gazing out into the darkness, pondering on base percentage. That's the kind of quality that Aaron Sorkin said. This is so good. You got to leave Steve's name on it. Well, of course you do. It had a Billy Bean sex scene in it, for God's sakes. <laughs> wow. Yikes. Wow. Yeah, we covered the fact that Art Howe didn't like how he's portrayed. What a shocker. Yeah. Uh, one of the big criticisms of both of the book and of the movie, I've always thought was is pointless. And it was the idea that the A's were really good, mostly because they had Tim Hudson, Mark Mulder, and Barry Zito, the pitching staff, three of the best pitchers in the American League. They mm-hmm. also had uh, Miguel Tejada was the MVP in 2002. Mm-hmm. Royce Clayton probably he's he's the Wally Sharada. <laughs> so he's sitting in the, he goes to the premiere and he's like, I played the MVP of the of the league. <laughs> oh, this, this is, is going to be big. And then he's like, right. Yeah, it costs a dollar. That's the only <laughs> thing he gets. <laughs> that and he nods when Jonah Hill explains to him what pitches to to swing at. Yeah. Uh, and then Eric Chavez had a huge season for the A's. None of them are mentioned by name right. in the movie at all. That's but true. I, the, but I thought the whole idea about this was trying to build out your roster for cheap. Well, the reason the A's already had the starting thing, they had, let's see, Hudson had been, he was a sixth round pick. Mulder had been the, fir- the second overall pick. And Barry Zito was the sixth overall pick in three drafts in a row. Those guys are on rookie contracts, and now the whole idea is, okay, we've got that. How do we fill around a team around these pitchers that's good enough that we can win? Well, the only way to do it is to find undervalued players. Mm-hmm. That doesn't, it doesn't mean that the book had to be about, and they're obviously they're all in the book, but even in the book, the emphasis is on the offensive players. Right. Because it's like, all right, we, we don't have that much money to spend, and we've got to fill out a whole roster. How the hell are we going to do it? So I've never bought that criticism. Right, right. 
Gotcha. Can, can I bitch for a second about Mark Mulder? Ah, please do. All right. <laughs> um, I, there's a long list of famous people who have blocked me on Twitter. <laughs> it started with, started with Bill Simmons, and it's, it's gone on after that. Well, Mark Mulder blocked me after a, a, a particularly edgy back and forth. He was on there talking to – he was talking shit with other Cub fans about something, and he mentioned the fact that he won a World Series. He has a World, or he has a World Series ring. That's what he said. So then I went out, and I just felt like it was my duty to <laughs> remind him that, yes, he got a World Series ring in 2006 when he was hurt. <laughs> right. He didn't pitch in the playoffs for yeah. <laughs> the Cardinals. And he got really mad when I decided to I – I, I have a Google machine in front of me. I decided to look it up. Um, he only pitched twice after uh, the end of June that season. And these are, his, these are the numbers from Mark Mulder's final seven starts of the year he won the World Series with the Cardinals. He was 2-5 and five with a 15.92 ERA. He allowed 61 hits in 29 innings with 11 home runs. He lost. Well, they, he gave up eight runs to the Cubs in 2006. They didn't score eight runs in entire months. They got eight <laughs> runs off of Mark. Uh, well, he was clearly the reason they won. Yes. Um, <laughs> he had he he pitched four years for the Cardinals. He had one good year. He was good in 2005. Uh, 2006, he got hurt. It was terrible. He was awful in 07 and 08, and he had to retire. So tough shit. Okay, one more. The actor who played David Justice was a guy named Stephen Bishop. I don't think he's Joey Bishop's brother, but he could be. Um, he played in the minors for the Braves with David Justice. Really? And That's cool. he was nicknamed Young Justice because of his resemblance and the resemblance of his mannerisms when he batted to David Justice. That's going to give you a leg up in casting to get that role. Do we think that he married young Halle Berry? <laughs> Probably not. I don't think so. <sighs> wow. That is some, some deep tracks. All right. So now we need to figure out who would you have played in this movie? Um, I'll go with Grady. Yeah, that'd be good. Uh, yeah. I'm going to go great. How about you? Who would I have played? Yeah. Uh, Young Justice. Young Justice. Excellent. I would have been David Justice. <laughs> Young Halle Berry. Yeah. Well, yeah. I would have been Billy's ex-wife. <laughs> or Billy's wife. The one who got cut out of the movie. That's who I would have played. Right. right. You didn't want to be Art Howe? Art Howe would have been great, too. That would be fun just to I, just I get think, to like. I, I think Art. Uh, yeah. Art you didn't want, to, you didn't want to play Art Howe because you wanted to be in the movie with Philip Seymour Hoffman. Exactly. So you didn't want to bump him out. Right. Um, I need to work with Philip. Yeah. Yeah. Both of those would have been great characters. And so if people who didn't hear the Right Stuff podcast, one of the questions I plan to ask in every one of these is who my favorite actor would have played in this movie. We need to find a role for Trey Wilson. People who don't know who Trey Wilson was, Trey was the manager in Bull Durham, and he was Nathan Arizona Sr. in Raising Arizona. Right. Um, okay. Died okay. at like 40 or 41, gone way too soon. Way too soon. He was awesome in every movie he was ever in. Right. I think he'd have been a great Grady. Oh, fantastic. Yes. I think that he yeah. would have been 
would have been true. Yeah. Um, he could have been Billy Bean, but you know, you can't get the movie made without Brad Pitt. So you Brad can't get a movie that. Yeah. Yeah. He might've been a good, uh, a good shot. Yeah. He could have been the owner and he's just done the whole that, disgusted, you know, <laughs> you're, a, you know, you're a small, we're a small market team and you're a small market GM. <laughs> <laughs> you only got your way around. But they would have had to. Have, they, what they would have had to, for the maximum Trey Wilson effect, they would have had to flipped one of the scenes so that he somehow, like Steve Shot, comes into the into the scouts meeting, and he's like, "There's, there's the Yankees, and there's us, or there's Yankees, there's every other team, and there's what is it, fifty feet 50, of 50 shit feet of crap of crap, and then there's us." That Trey Wilson had to. They, that would have been. You could yes. not have had him in the movie and not had him deliver that monologue. That, right. That is the perfect Trey Wilson line right there. Yes. Yes. All right. So what's our verdict on Moneyball? So the verdict meaning who, who won in our, our competition? Well, no, not that yet. Just on the movie oh, as a okay. whole. Is it, is it a good movie? It's a great movie. Yes, I think it's a great movie. I think it's one of – actually, the better question is, like, where does it rank – among sports movies and baseball movies in general. And I would have said when they, I remember, I literally remember seeing they were going to make a movie and thinking that's the dumbest idea ever. How do you make a movie out of this? Right. And then going to it and being like, holy crap, this is a, this is a, this is a good movie. Right. Right. Um, yeah. Well, so, okay. So for me, you've got, when it comes to great baseball movies, it, it's the natural it's it's bull durham it's it's major league there there are so many great baseball movies this this one is uh this one is unique in that so much of what happens in the movie if you're a fan of baseball today you it's very um applicable to what to what's going on to what teams are doing to how they value players, to ownership wanting to, you know, cut money, um, to, you know, general managers and, and field managers and, and the friction. And, you, and these guys always wanting to work in sync together. So there's a, there's a, there's a lot of that with which, um, which it makes that unique, unique and, and very watchable today. So it's, it's definitely in the upper echelon, but I would not go over, right. you know, any of those that I'd make. Well, it's tough to be it's tough to be the best baseball movie when there's very little baseball in the movie. That's true. It's a lot of talking about baseball, and then it's a couple of highlight montages. Um, because you want this is a great story, well told. It's a very yes. interesting story, well told. So it's it's worth your two hours watching it. But when you go to a baseball movie, if you're gonna if you're gonna revisit one over and over again, you want one that has like the chill moments in it and all that stuff. And this really, you do. I did just while rewatching it when when Pratt hits the home run. Yeah, you do get like oh, you know, it's a it's a really cool moment, and the sound that they use when he hits it, the thing that it's so loud that you know Billy Bean can hear it in the Raiders weight room somehow um, right. it, you know, it snaps you to attention, you know, from no matter what. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so I thought it was, yeah. Well, there's a reason it was on our, both of us put it on our list. That's why it's the first one. So it's kind of dumb, I guess, to ask the question, do we think it's good? We, there's only six movies that we both ranked together and this was one of them. Right. So clearly going yeah. in, we both thought it was a good movie. Right. All right. So could they remake this as a 10-episode Netflix? Oh, wait, that's not our – that's that's a different podcast. 
<laughs> All right. So this is now we're to the part where we have no idea how this how we're going to make this work. None. We're making this up as we go. Our my initial thought was we figure out who won, who made the most astute points for only the purpose of then picking the next movie that we do. That's the right. whole the whole reason. Right. Um, and then we don't even know if we didn't even come up with a, a process then because we've got the wheels and we can like, yes. like if you, if we declare me the winner, we could spin my wheel or mm-hmm. do we burn off the six that we had in common, spin that wheel yeah. or does the person who win get the choice of, I want to pick the next movie or I want to spin the wheel. I think it's that. I think it's winner's choice. All right. So I, th- so I think the winner can choose to spin the winner's wheel to spin the, the, the original six wheel, which do we officially replace do we put rounders on the on the list? No, we can. We'll do that next time we spin it because we can. We should do. We it. can okay. take. Um, uh, well, obviously, we'll take Moneyball off because Moneyball is going to come off, right? So we'll replace that with with rounders. That that'll be our last replacement, but that'll. So I think the winner gets to choose his own wheel to spin his own wheel or to spin the original six. Or you could say I'm going to spin from your from. Uh, That's true. You can spin anyway. It's your choice. You win. You get to pick. Your you get to pick how we pick the movie. All right. That's right. All right, so who do we think won this one? So I'm going to I'm going to uh, I'm going to I am going to so I'm going to suggest I have a clear answer to this. Um and I'm going to start by saying I, I, the thing I liked most about your analysis uh I liked a lot of it. I I liked the 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 three Sorkin-y scenes. I thought that was that was great. So I'm going to give you so I'm going to say that was uh that was my favorite part of your of your analysis of the movie. Now I'm supposed to say what, what you know, you're fishing for me to tell you what your my favorite part of your analysis you have, of the movie was. You don't have to. <laughs> no, I mean I've you uh, the reason that it's so great to do this podcast with you is not only do you enjoy the movies, but you have something that I don't have, which is an actual idea of how all this shit works. Um so I appreciate that. Um plus I like the fact that um I got to surprise you and hopefully some of the listeners with the fact that Tom Gamboa was the guy who got attacked by the Lagoo kid, dad, by father, son, asshole group from, from Chicago. <laughs> right. All right. So, so do we I have a consensus going, on who won? I'm going to say it's you. I'm going with you. All right. I'm going to agree with that only for one reason, because I really want to pick the next movie. Okay, good. That's the whole reason. <laughs> All right. Well, and I was going to spin the wheel, but I'm not going to spin the wheel only for one reason. It is a movie that's yeah. on our six. Okay. Because after watching this, I really want to watch Major League. Nice. So, awesome. win or lose next time, I'm spinning. But this time, we're just going to call it. And we're going to watch Major League. Their, we're going to keep it the spring training theme. Yeah, and go I figure it's the perfect time to watch, to watch the, these two movies. So, yes. Right. Cool. So that's what we will do. Next time, right. we, this is, next time you hear this, it will be a movie deep dive into the... 1989 classic. God, that movie is 32 years old. Wow. Major oh, League. That's, that's depressing. Well, this is fun. I enjoyed it. This is great. All right. Well, until All next right. time. Till next time, everybody go watch Major League, and we'll, we'll be back at you. All right. Many of us have herpes. 